Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's podcast for Christ Followers Bible Study, we're continuing on in the book of Acts. We'll be starting in chapter 2 with a little wind-up from chapter 1. Mark tells me that we didn't quite get uh, all the details there. And if you uh, get to this before you get to chapter 1, our part Part 1 actually was the intro and part of Chapter 1. Go back there and listen to both of those. They're very good podcasts. I think this series is going to be really good on Acts. And as we like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you again for allowing us to study your word and to study uh, the meaning so that we can apply it to our lives, so that we can be beacons of truth, and uh, spread the love of Jesus Christ to one and all and that they would be able to see it. And thank you for Mark uh, in this study. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Good evening, Mark. Yeah, good evening. It's good to be back with everyone. I hope everyone had a good week. Uh, we have just started looking at the book of Acts, which serves as a very consistent follow-up to the book of Luke and was originally published and copied along with Luke later after the four Gospels were combined then Acts kind of became a standalone and unique uh, book amongst the Greek scriptures as well as being a follow-up to Luke it's also an extremely almost eerily consistent follow-up to the Gospel attributed to John which we just recently looked at a few weeks ago finished anyway and so very interesting as we talked about the book in general and then about chapter 1, I pointed out that I believe chapter 1 verse 6 is a key verse where the disciples, which was numbered about 120 uh, followers who had stayed in Jerusalem in that upper room that uh, they had, I guess, rented for the Passover, they lingered there and after receiving 40 days of instruction about the kingdom of God directly from Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verse 6, they ask him, Lord, do you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And we're going to see that this is a theme that runs throughout the book, the the regathering of Israel, the recreation of Israel, the restoration of the monarchy of David is going to be a theme that we'll see uh, threading all through this book. And it's a very important concept because it 
it demonstrates uh, what was emphasized over and over and over in the Gospel of John, that the kingdom was a spiritual kingdom and was not an earthly kingdom, and that the restoration of Israel was to be a spiritual restoration, not a physical restoration. And, th and this is an absolutely essential concept because so many of our, our friends and relatives are caught up in the idea of, of waiting almost to the point of uh, neglecting important things. They're waiting for the restoration of an earthly kingdom in physical Jerusalem, for the physical restoration of Israel and of the kingdom, where Jesus has said over and over that my kingdom is not of this world. And so he has apparently been repeating that to the apostles or the disciples, and they they finally should understand because they've been given a divine opening of their minds and 40 days of instruction, not constantly. Jesus was already ascended to heaven, and he appeared at different times during those 40 days, but we're, we're specifically told in chapter 1, verse 3, that his the main focus was to speak to them about the kingdom of God so they could understand the nature of that kingdom. And the other point that I just wanted to make uh, that I forgot last time in chapter 1 at the end, in verse 24, they prayed and said, Lord, who knows the hearts of all men, and they're asking for help in choosing a replacement for Judas. But it's important to note that they are in the context here. Lord is referring to Jesus Christ, not to God the Father. And we learned from the prologue of the Gospel of John that all contact with the Father is through the Son. And so some some folks have a problem in praying to Jesus. But the book of Acts will show us on several occasions that this is how the disciples prayed here after the ascension. They prayed when they talked about Lord, they're talking about Jesus. And of course, the Son and the Father are one. So it's not, it's not a uh, popularity contest or anything like that. But remember that John in the prologue explains that the only part of God that we can talk to, that we can listen to, that we can understand is the incarnate word or logo of God, which was incarnated as the Son, Jesus Christ. It's it's a little bit beyond our ability to grasp, but just need to point that out because traces of what we call the Arian heresy have lingered with us for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, Arius was an influential bishop who declared that Jesus was basically a created being and was not coexistent from all eternity past with God the Father, and uh, he, he swept the world and ruthlessly crushed his opposition, the leader of which uh, was named Athanasius, and we actually have a mutual friend, Will Grigg, who named one of his sons Athanasius, because he would never de deny the divinity of Christ. So, uh, just an important point here, the apostles, the disciples, had no problem at all with praying to Christ or boldly declaring the divinity of Christ. All right, any any thoughts or questions here before we go into Chapter 2? No, or, except, uh, Mark, I'm going to be bringing something up later because as we look at Chapter 2, it has an enormous Schofield footnote attached to it that is some five or 600 words 
uh, and actually carries over into another page, which has another seven or 800 words. And all of this is obviously a very big explanation of something that's in a little piece of scripture that you're going to be giving us. So uh, we're going to be finding out what uh, I'm going to be asking, what the Schofield slant is to uh, this. All right. Well, I've been forewarned. You've been forewarned. <laughs> sure you're ready. All right. Let's look at the first four verses of chapter 2, please. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. All right, thank you, Leslie. Um, uh, Pentecost is uh, its kind of a word that means 50th. Uh, I, it might mean 50-something, uh, but it was uh, the 50th day after Passover, and uh, seven weeks of seven days is uh, 49, and then the 50th day, if Passover was on a Saturday, then this Pentecost would have been on a Sunday, and I think all of the uh, churches and denominations pretty much say that Pentecost was on the first day of the week or a Sunday, although the Sadducees and the Pharisees had different ways of reckoning Pentecost, and uh, I believe the Sadducees, it would always be on a Sunday, but with the Pharisees, it would always be on the same day of the month, like the first or the second or whatnot because of the way that they accounted. But anyway, we believe in all likelihood that this, at least this Pentecost, at least was on a Sunday or the first day of the week. And this has a lot of symbolic meaning because the first day is also the eighth day. And the Sabbath under the law of Moses represented God's work of salvation, which was incomplete at the first creation. It was kind of waiting in the wings for the new creation which was accomplished on the cross when Christ created a new body a collective body of believers who were perfect in every way and complete although at this point in their infancy but the eighth day has great symbolic meaning as being the day after the Sabbath and this is the day of the resurrection and now it's the day of the new birth here as we are about to witness the the real birth, the the body really was conceived at the cross, but now is going to be born here on the day of Pentecost. Uh, again, all symbolically occurring on the first day of the week. This was a a, a feast of the Judeans, um, not quite as big as Passover, perhaps, but it was a, an important feast in which. All the male Judeans were supposed to gather together to the temple if they were able to do so. And so there was a, there would have been a large gathering of Judeans. And remember that most of the Judeans were scattered all over the world, particularly all over the Roman Empire, but even further beyond India and places like that as well. Most of them, 95% of them, remained in Babylon when... 
Ezra and Nehemiah came back to rebuild the temple and so on. So there were there were huge Judean communities in every major city in the Roman Empire and many others beyond the Roman Empire. And those who were well off enough would travel back to Jerusalem at least once a year for one of the festivals. And some would try to come for, for perhaps all of them. So this was one of those occasions when there would have been a large gathering of Judeans who did not live in Judea. But remember, the idea of Judean is a nationality. And so they, they were all descendants of Judah, of the Judahites who were carried as prisoners into Babylon back 586 B.C. was the last of three deportations of the residents of Judea over to Babylon, which is Iraq on our modern globe. So anyway, that kind of sets the place and the occasion and the event. And this is 10 days then, roughly, not exactly, uh, after Christ has ascended for the final time. And they may have been in this upper room where they've been kind of holed up since Jesus' arrest. And as they are there, they hear this this loud noise. And it's important to note when we hear when we see the word wind here in, in two, that in both Hebrew and in Greek, the one word is used to mean uh, spirit or wind or breath. And and really it also kind of means life as well, because it was like if you if you have breath in you, are you still breathing? Are you still alive? And the translators, both from Hebrew and from Greek, have to use the context to decide how to translate this word, which is pneuma in the Greek. I don't recall the Hebrew word, but it does carry a triple meaning, at, at least to us who, who use the English language. And so wind and spirit are closely related because it's the same word. And this wind is uh, is upon them, and then there there's a visual effect that look like tongues splitting apart that were kind of made of fire, so that each one of them had this fire uh, sit upon them. This is a a specific fulfillment of the prophecy of John the Baptist, who said, "I baptize with water, but one comes after me, who I'm not worthy to." Uh, lace his shoes, and he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And this is actually being fulfilled right here at this time. Each one of them had this sit upon them, just as the the Spirit descended the dove and kind of immersed Christ after his water baptism. Now the Spirit is is surrounding all of these disciples, and as a sign of this, power coming on them, they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. These are languages that they had no training or experience in uh, before. So it's quite a momentous. Why did that happen, and what was what's the significance of that? Because, of course, that's a controversial thing in, in, in many charismatic churches where uh, this is a a sign of uh, holiness is that one pronounces in some indiscernible tongue. But here, do we know why? Do we have an idea why that the Lord caused them to do this? Well, we do. We're told that these signs and wonders 
were given to confirm the word that was spoken. And so we're told in black and white exactly why these signs and wonders occurred. The same reason that they could raise the dead or heal a leper or cause the blind to see. It was a sign and a wonder which were prophesied as being part of Israel's last days. And Daniel clearly explains to us uh, in chapter 9 of Daniel that you know vision and prophecy would uh, cease there at the, during the 70th week. And then Paul goes into great detail on this, pardon me, in First Corinthians, where he explains that all these signs and wonders will cease, uh, which would correspond to Daniel's end of the 70th week. It's also, well, Ephesians chapter 4 talks about that these these special gifts and even the office of apostle was necessary for the infancy of the church. And recalling our, our friend Luke, uh, this is the body of, of Christ. This is the, the foretold kingdom, not a local body of, of disciples by any means. But uh, let's just flip over there to Ephesians 4. And again, many uh, Christians today, they're very proud of their paid staff and everything, and they, they only read part of Ephesians 4. It says, I'll start in verse 7 of Ephesians 4, But unto each one of us was the grace given according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he said, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. So his ascension, you see, is tied to this giving of these gifts. So was this a crash burlitz course? Somebody learned Indian and some... Well, the, no, the, they were divinely given this power in a Right. I mean, did they basically have that... Is this, was that a tool for them then? Well, absolutely. It was a sign to the listeners. It was also... I mean, since these people are Judean and they came to Jerusalem, it's likely that they all spoke Aramaic, although it was probably a second language for some of them. But in some cases, it would be their language that they learned at home. And then they spoke uh, their native language out in the workplace uh, during the week, and they may have spoken Aramaic at home. And when they were in Jerusalem, they would have all understood Aramaic. So it was probably not an essential gift for the people to understand uh, what was being said, but it was a sign because they could see by the how these men spoke their accent and whatnot that they were Galileans. They weren't proper Judeans, people who lived in the environments of Jerusalem, they were from the boonies, Galilee, and apparently spoke with an accent. We know this from the Gospel of John because Peter was recognized there in the courtyard of the high priest by the way that he spoke. And they said, oh, you're a Galilean, you're a friend of this man. And that's when Peter denied that he knew Jesus. So their speech gave them away. And, and the audience will see here in a little bit understood that they were Galileans who were not known for higher education. The, the schools of higher learning were in Jerusalem, not in Galilee. So it was definitely a sign more than it was a means of effective communication. But it might be effective communication if they were going out into the known world to do testimony. Yes, it w- was, but... Again, in the known world, Greek was the universal language. So Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, and he had a commanding knowledge of Greek and probably Latin, being extremely well-educated. So even then, it wasn't necessary. And in 1 Corinthians, 
Paul shows that usually when the gift of, of languages was used, it was being used to an audience who couldn't even understand that language. And so he insisted that there be an interpreter present who could explain these utterances in the foreign language. So, again, everywhere we see this being used, it was more of a, a sign and wonder than it was a necessary means of communication. But perhaps, uh, and probably, in fact, some of the apostles went beyond the Roman Empire, where Greek was not known, into India, in the case of Thomas, or to uh, Ethiopia, in the case of Matthias, and so on. And there, very well, this gift could have helped them communicate uh, with the inhabitants. And, and there's a likelihood that it did, in fact, serve that secondary purpose. But uh, jumping back to Ephesians 4, just to finish this thought, he gave gifts to men, and then skipping the parenthetical statement up to verse 11, he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastor-teachers for the perfecting of the saints to the work of ministering unto the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain unto the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a full-grown man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And, and again, Paul here is calling forth this imagery of the kingdom being the body of Christ as starting out as an infant going through youth, but eventually achieving maturity. And uh, sadly, most Christians today, I guess, don't believe that we've ever had the opportunity to become a full-grown man and that we still need, you know, these gifts today. But Paul specifically tells us that these gifts were given to bring the body of Christ to maturity. And I personally believe that this occurred by the time the last apostle uh, passed on and uh, and that these uh, gifts passed away as the apostles passed away and finished their their great mission uh, there in the first century is that what you adhere to yes that's that... that's personally believe yes so i don't believe we have the office of pastor teacher or evangelist or prophet uh, or apostle in the sense that they had them in the first century. But that would not, as compared to having gifts of teaching, prophecy, and those kind of things that Paul talks about. What about those? We we all have those gifts, and we're given great instruction that we are to use these gifts to help others and to build up the body of Christ. Uh, So I'm not talking about that at all, but but in Ephesians 4, the context are these miraculous gifts which were given beginning here on the day of Pentecost. And the temporary nature of those gifts is clearly stated here in Ephesians 4. It's clearly stated also in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, I believe it is. And it's, you know, it, it's at least partially stated in Daniel chapter 9 that, uh, these, that prophecy would be sealed up after the 70th week. Uh, so... Uh, These signs were were temporary uh, for the the acceleration of the maturing of the new spiritual collective body of Christ, which is also spiritual Israel. Uh, Are you ready to tackle these? uh, um, If we have thousand words of footnotes uh, in the Schofield Reference Bible that 
uh, are attempting to interpret this scripture in, I think, a different way than you are? For um, okay, this is these are the notes on verse four. Then yes, these are the notes to verse uh, to, uh, to uh, verse one uh, on the day of Pentecost. And the, in the Scofield Reference Bible, it's, it slants this whole thing toward the sixth dispensation, the church. And it talks about this being the new age of the church. But uh, as I read on down here, it's uh, so long and protracted, it, it's really a harangue. Uh, it talks about the, dis, the, the point of testing this dispensation. But it gets down into the uh, uh, a little further, and it says, let me read, the Lord Jesus uh, warned that during the whole period, while the church is being formed by the Holy Spirit, many will reject his gospel, and many others will pretend to believe him and will become a source of spiritual corruption and hindrance to his purpose in this age and in the professing church. These will, be, these will bring apostasy, particularly in the last days, there it makes lots of references to other uh, verses, such as Matthew 13:24. Then it goes on, The church age will be brought to a close by a series of prophetic events, the chief of which are the translation of the true church from the earth to meet her Lord in the air at a point of uh, time known to God but unrevealed to men and ever held before believers as the eminent and uh, happy hope, encouraging them in loving service and holiness of life. This event is often called the rapture, referred to in Thessalonians. That's point one. So this is all being made out of uh, verse one, which is, and then the day of Pentecost was fully come and, and they were all in one place, and then all these footnotes occur explaining that first verse, talking about uh, this preparation for the rapture. And then it talks further, and this goes on, Mark, the judgment of the 70th week of Daniel, called the tribulation, which will fall upon mankind in general, but which will include the unsaved portion of the professing church, which will have gone into apostasy and thus be left behind on earth when the two church is translated to heaven. This final form of the apostasy, uh, apostate church, is described in Romans 17, the harlot. And then finally, there's a third reference here, the return from heaven to earth of our Lord Jesus Christ in power and glory, bringing with him his church to set up his millennial kingdom of righteousness and peace. Also referring to Revelations 19:11. So, the innocent reader who reads this little verse of Matthew and reads this first little verse about uh, this first little verse in Acts about the Pentecost is going to be drug into then this long, long discourse about the rapture, the return of Jesus in his time, and even the failure of the church during Jesus' time. Yep. Uh, th those are all 1967 footnotes in the Schofield Reference Bible. Yeah, there's you no. You see why no... people are tremendously confused by this when you read them and then try to figure out what does that really have to do with verse 1. Well, yeah, there, in my 1908 electronic edition, I, there's no notes at all on verse 1. I have one tiny note, a definition in verse 3, and then I have a lengthy discourse 
on verse 4, but which is nothing like what you right. just so, read. So, so we so have these a, are not original. These are not original Schofield notes. These were all plugged in after the Zionist State of Israel was created in 1948, and they appeared in the 1967 version, which changed all the footnotes, most of the footnotes, to the original Schofield Reference Bible. So this is yeah. all... It's all uh, it's a, late date after Israel stuff. Right. It's a summation of a dispensational mythology. You know, there. I mean, we could we could waste the rest of our time going through it point by point. We've we've talked about most of those points in other books of the Bible. I mean, the basic you have you have ninety percent truth mixed in with one huge or, or two or three large errors. The the uh, the false distinction between the church and the kingdom of God is uh, where there are two separate ages. That's an artificial division, a man-made division that's not found in the scripture. And the clear understanding as we look at the Hebrew prophets that when they spoke of the last days, they were speaking of the last days of physical Israel. We we looked at that context uh, deeply as we went into the book of Daniel we can see that in Deuteronomy uh, 30, 31 in the Song of Moses, which, of course, is referenced in Revelation, and it speaks of the destruction of physical Israel because their final generation would commit a crime so dastardly that it could not be overlooked. Uh, I wonder what that was. And uh, this leads to this great confusion. There, There certainly was a great tribulation in the last days that led right up to the establishment of the uh, kingdom. But these are the events of the first century, not the, uh, the over and over again misapplied events of the 19th century and the 20th century and the 21st century. We, we, we can see the fulfillment of all of these things uh, there in the first century during the last days of physical Israel when the the age of Israel which the dispensations probably call what the fifth dispensation or something is on its way out and the new age the age of Christ and his kingdom is coming in and this period that overlapped the two from the cross to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 is a period of transition and it is it corresponds to the last days of all the prophets, and we're going to see right here in Acts two how Paul clearly, uh, Peter rather, and Luke clearly identify those days with the last days of the prophets. Well, I guess my response in closing that the thought is thanks. I can see how the evangelical church is tremendously confused by the insertion of this incredible harangue that goes in a totally different direction than the scripture plugged in in 19 after 1948 into the into the bible they read and it, and it appears to get even worse on the next page so i won't bring up any more of this but there is another totally whole detailed 600 word discourse on page 1163 of the Schofield bible which refers to later verses that we haven't even got into yet. Yeah, and, and we'll try to hit the high points. Uh, again, th- th- this is so damning to their to their vision and their timeline that they've got to explain it away. You know, so that's uh, exactly what it appears to be. 
it appears to be a, a huge effort to explain away something that just won't wash. Again, in, instead of being the fulfillment of God's eternal purpose to create a bride for his son, the church becomes an afterthought and a holding, just a placeholder to wait for the real fulfillment, which will be the physical restoration of physical Israel in physical Jerusalem to bring in the final dispensation and the final age. So uh, it's quite, uh, again, heretical in my mind that way, because over and over in Acts we'll see that the apostles are claiming the fulfillment of all the scripture, not leaving anything left unfulfilled for some unforeseen event uh, 3,000 years in the future. All right, well, let's look here at the next paragraph. Read 5 through 13, please. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They have had too much wine. Yeah, so this was probably about 9 o'clock in the morning uh, when this happened. And I, I may have mentioned this to you all before, but when I had the opportunity to visit Jerusalem a few years ago, we learned with very persuasive confirmation that when you use the term upper room in the first century anywhere in the Middle East, you weren't just talking about the top floor of a house. All the houses there had two stories because the animals lived in the basement and then everyone lived up on the floor above that, except in the summer they lived on the roof. So the concept of an upper room referred to a specific formal dining hall that was built over the burial cave of the uh, family. And we made a special trip to Petra to see these upper rooms that date from the first century. And there's scores of them over there. The great big structure that figures so prominently in the Indiana Jones movie is actually an upper room. They're actually excavating the burial caves that are buried underneath that very elaborate dining room that's carved right into the face of the red sandstone cliffs and is so impressive there. So within the walled city of Jerusalem, there were only about three burial caves located inside the city wall. One was a high priest from the age of the Maccabees, but the other two or three are presumably from David's dynasty, our royal tombs, and presumably one of them was originally David's tomb itself. It was uh, desecrated at uh, certain times in the past during uh, 
destruction of Jerusalem and so on. But we actually went to where the remnants of these burial caves are dug into the side of the hill, and there's houses that come right up over them almost, not quite, but right up to them. And, and there's a remnant of a structure over one of them, and we that's where we went and gathered and uh, sang some hymns and so on. And this is just a block or two from the Pool of Siloam, which is this huge, huge bathing pool. There's actually a huge uh, fountain of drinking water where Hezekiah's tunnel comes out of the hill and fills up this uh, fountain where you can drink clear, pure water from directly from the spring. And then the overflow of that goes down and fills up this huge bathing pool where the pilgrims would ceremonially wash before they went up to the temple. So on these feast days like Pentecost, there would have been a huge crowd. The seating carved into the hills around the Pool of Siloam could hold hundreds of thousands of people. And this is only two or three blocks from where the few upper rooms within the walled city would have been so it is conceivable that this noise could be heard right over there at the Pula Siloam where there these pilgrims were waiting their turn to go up the monumental staircase to the Temple Mount because the Temple Mount even though it was vast it could not hold the, all the pilgrims at one time who assembled for these great feast days and so also being close to the wall of the city there would have been a a much wider road uh, right there between that last block of buildings and houses and the wall, which would have allowed a large number of people to gather, to crowd in. Now, we don't know if, if they're still on the upper room or not. So this is you know, somewhat speculative on my part, but it was quite impressive to, to walk it, to go up there, sing the hymn at the grave site, and then to walk three blocks to see uh, the, the newly discovered and vast Pool of Siloam. There's been one for centuries that Queen Elena identified in the 4th century or 3rd century that is so tiny in comparison that the archaeologists now call it the tumor because it was just like a little wading pond that uh, was fed from an attic coming out of Hezekiah's tunnel and its way up the hill from the real Pool of Siloam which they actually uncovered trying to repair the sewers that service East Jerusalem. So interesting trivia there. But these pilgrims from all these different countries, Persia, Mesopotamia, Libya, uh, modern-day Turkey, all parts of Persia uh, and so on are all mentioned here. And they would have been right in that area and uh, could have heard this and uh, gathered there at this sound. And some are astounded and wanting to know what it means, while others are trying to make fun of these illiterate Galileans by insinuating that they are drunk. I'm just skimming through to see if there's any Schofield notes on this, and I don't see any in the 1908 edition. There's a whole page, but I don't think they're worth bringing up. No. Yeah, okay. I think you've already covered that very nicely as basically a heresy and a... And a lavish attempt to change the nature of what the scripture says oh all right well i i don't know if i if if it was that easy uh we wouldn't be in the mess we were in but let's just kind of tantalize ourselves here for next week by uh reading 
14 down through 18. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and billows of smoke. All right, uh, thank you. Now, does anyone remember what had happened uh, about 50 days before this in the way of uh, unusual weather events? Earthquakes and dark skies. Like the sun being turned into darkness? That's in verse 20. Oh yeah, well, yeah, because yeah, I'm arbitrarily breaking it up. <laughs> but uh, mm-hmm. yes, you see, if any of these pilgrims, certainly the locals in the crowd, had been there uh, for the crucifixion, they would have seen these signs exactly as described here. These are also repeated in Revelation six, not not referring to some future fantastical event ushering in the physical kingdom in Palestine, but rather the events that surrounded the death of our Lord on the cross. Again, just as Moses prophesied in the Song of Moses, uh, this great crime that the final generation of Israel uh, would commit, it had been done. And Prophet Joel, without going into uh, a lot of detail, who do you think the prophecy of the prophet Joel was addressed to. Addressed to? Yeah. Uh, Who was Joel speaking for exactly? Uh, Specifically, Judah at that time, uh, Israel had already gone bye-bye as far as the northern kingdom, but uh, he is speaking to Judeans. And all of the Hebrew prophets, of course, were speaking to Israel. So Joel wasn't really speaking to the church which didn't exist at the time, he is speaking to Israel. And this is important because the last days, the context of the last days, is not the last days of the church. It is the last days of Israel. And again, we can see this in all the prophets. The prophets were speaking to Israel. They were talking about the promises to Israel that God had made, which involved both deliverance and judgment in nearly every case. And this is certainly true in the book of Joel. Uh, I think uh, next time we'll actually begin by going back and looking at the second chapter of Joel. It's not that long, but it it expands on this. And, And recall, every person in the audience on the day of Pentecost gathered on every Sabbath to hear the law and the prophets read. And so they would have known the prophet Joel by heart by this time. And 
uh, this little excerpt is quoted by Peter, and they would have brought to mind the rest of the book of Joel, at least the continuation of the context here that's quoted, and understood that it was all being fulfilled there, uh, or at least Peter was claiming that it was all being fulfilled there uh, on that day at that time. So when we start next time, we're going to go back and look at Joel and what Joel is speaking of and everything and, and pay particular attention to chapter 2, which is being fulfilled here on the day of Pentecost. And that's probably a good uh, spot to break here for this time. All right, great. Thank you, Mark. That was good. That was excellent. And the discussions with the Schofield Reverence Bible thrown in really made this a very interesting study. We'll look forward to continuing on next week. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast. And please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.